Hello, everyone. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, bringing episode, what is this, 6,922? <laughs> so if this is your first time viewing us, you have a lot of catching up yeah, to do because sure. we have resolved many of the world's problems, especially <laughs> clinical problems mm. uh, that happen for people in the world. So that's what we're here to do again today. If uh, you're new to us, thanks for joining us for this great episode. We've got the, the head honchos, the big dogs in the room Ooh. to talk about biopsychosocial model of care. Uh, it's on Peak's site, many of those out there, uh, findingpeaks at peaksrecovery.com or information at findingpeaks.com. Okay. I'll fix it, we'll, fi we'll figure it out, we'll yeah. get to it. But with that, there's a lot of curiosity around the biopsychosocial model, and that's what we're here to talk today against the backdrop of maybe other models that might exist in the industry. Uh, we've got Chief Clinical Officer, Jason Friesma, LPC, LAC, most of the clinical things. Yeah. Yeah. EMDR? EMDR? I have been EMDR trained, yes. Ooh, Thanks nice. for asking. Yeah. Great question. Clint Nicholson, <laughs> Chief Operating Officer, LPC, LAC, all the clinical things. Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. EMDR? EMDR? It's not true. No. <laughs> this is a great day for the uh, biopsychosocial model because we've got some tiredness in the room. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's, everybody's yeah. a little tuckered out, long yeah. week. Yeah. Here we are. Sleep. Yeah. Important all three of these things, <laughs> right? <laughs> At the end of the day. So yeah. uh, they're here to show us what not to do and how to <laughs> better walk through this as a mechanism. So yeah. breaking down what mm. biopsychosocial means. So we have biological, psychological, and social environment. Who wants to kick this off? I'm giddy. Good news. I think we start biological, right? Biological. It's in the beginning. Yeah. So the bio side of things, right. what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Why is it important? Well, I'm gonna take a step back. Okay. And model of care, what is that actually referring to? And uh, essentially what you're, there are different models that identify what are believed to be either the, the cause or highly cor correlative um, sort of variables that promote or um, create addiction. And so uh, like biopsychosocial model is looking at all of these different varying aspects of an individual's life recognizing that we don't live in a vortex. You know, we live in a dynamic world and that the reason for our behavior is not one thing, it's everything. There are multiple components that, uh, that are, create us as a human being and then therefore impact our behaviors. So um, that's like the big, big picture. And that was probably the easiest one to answer. So I'll, I'll kick it off to Jason now. So oh, okay. you can get down yeah. to the nitty gritty, yeah. I'm a big picture guy. So. Oh, okay, well, thanks for yeah. uh, doing that overview. And I think maybe <laughs> to, to answer, Brandon, your, your question specifically, like biological is obviously um, what's going on in somebody's body. Um, and, and particularly when we look at um, depression or addiction, that's a lot of what's going on in the brain, although other parts of the body certainly would be uh, a component of biological um, component. And, and really, a, lo a lot of times people come to our program in biologically not great shape, whether whether mm. it's from neglecting their body or literally abusing their body, um, that is an aspect that if that isn't isn't addressed, um, it will certainly hinder uh, a person's ability to uh, recover from mental illness or addiction. So, um, a biological component um, clearly makes sense in our model of care. And with with uh, Peaks, we have a, a robust medical team um, that is equipped to. To handle people dealing with uh, a variety of uh, significant uh, medical impairments, um, and I and I would include also like the, the the neurological components in that as well as part of that biological component. 
Back to you. Back to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, why don't we call it body logical? It's great. Just out of curiosity. Or I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. No, no. Okay. I actually was. Just <laughs> oh, skip to physiological. Yeah. If you don't feel good, it's going to be really hard to like work on yourself from yeah. a psychological, psycho-emotional standpoint. So you gotta. That's probably where a good chunk of the stabilization model takes place that physiological stabilization. And you get things like MAT, Suboxone for people with opioid use disorder. Um, you know, we do, you can do either like a Valium or a Phenotaper for people who are on uh, alcohol use disorder or even benzo use disorder as well. So there are a bunch of different, um, and then if, of course with mental health, you know, like stabilization through pharma, pharmacological interventions are really important. And it gives you sort of like a, a baseline, I guess, so that you can start to do deeper work. Because if you're super dysregulated physiologically, you're, uh, you're basically just, I don't know, you're, I want to, spitting into the wind, I guess. Yeah. I almost oh, used a different spitting. word. Well, yeah. I, I, I think that's, you know, that's a good point. And just to hang on it for a second, because, you know, and, and rightfully so, so much of the work or perceived work as a causal feature of ongoing maladaptive behaviors is something like a past uh, traumatic event carrying out and playing out in somebody's you know life over a period of time that doesn't resolve itself turns you know over time into a maladaptive behavior but you know so people call peaks and they'll say something like hey i gotta work on my trauma and okay but i've also been using you know meth heroin you know alcohol you know consistently daily for the past six months right so within treatment episodes we you know what what i think I hear us at least stating around the biological aspect of this is you can't immediately dive into it because we aren't physiologically speaking well enough to actually participate in yeah. it, right? It's not that it's not an important value set, um, but if you you know have the the stomach pains of going through an opiate withdrawal, like there's just no advantage to engaging yeah. in an EMDR session or anything of that nature. I mean, if you've been doing meth and you've been up for three days. Doing inner child work is going to be really tough because you're going to be very tired. Yeah, and it's just yeah, we should wait. To do that. <laughs> we should wait. Yeah, <laughs> like you need to no. take a nap first. Yeah, and then I it's the Maslow's hierarchy is another way of kind of looking at it or framing the biopsychosocial model. And that it's just the idea that you have these basic human functions that have to, and needs that have to be met before you can sort of climb the pyramid towards self-actualization. And so that biological uh, those biological functions like shelter, food, water, um, are again part of that foundation. Like re they really make, uh, they create the scaffolding that we can kind of build from throughout the rest of the treatment episode. When I, I think of the word, I'll, I'll borrow a word from the emergency department, triage, right? Where mm. when people go to the emergency department um, in, after a car accident, that isn't the time you want to get you know, a mole looked at. Uh, it's probably when you're dealing with some <laughs> acute injuries yeah. and that sort of thing. And oftentimes when people are coming into peaks, like there's some acute physical symptoms that are going on that just need to be addressed um, before we get to the looking at the mole, if you will. Yeah. Or the inner child. Is yeah. And, and, and of course, right, you have the biological distress, you know, markers of addiction and mental health disorders. On top of it, you have the psychological impact of mm -hmm. removing yourself um, from your last use at the end of the day as well, too, right? So mm -hmm. you come in, you're feeling like crap, but you also have this intense pull psychologically <laughs> to want to be doing so. So I think we can, you know, the viewers can hear out there how this kind of really starts compounding on itself. And yeah. you can see how complex this really becomes to treat as a condition, because even if the person physiologically wants to be well, um, the greatest resource to them, you know, especially in substance use disorders, was the drug of choice in the background that mm -hmm. would alleviate that symptomology for them. 
And so there's this tug and pull relationship of wanting to feel well, but experientially speaking, the medicines we're using are different from what the brain is originally associated with. So there's a conflict there. Yeah. And uh, out of this, just using that kind of as a bridge into this psychological aspect. And so let's talk more about the psychological component of it. Yeah, sure. And so, um, you know, part of, we actually, when people come to Peaks and it's standard in the industry, we do biopsychosocial evaluations, like where we kind of look at all these aspects um, of a person's life. And, and they do tend to be pretty in depth. And, and the psychological part is certainly looking at um, mental health issues and, and even beyond the ones that maybe people are initially presenting with. You mentioned a minute ago trauma, like that is, uh, you know, it's fairly ubiquitous and, and it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but it, for a good reason, because a lot of people do endure a fair amount of trauma, but it, but it is beginning to look at, um, <clears throat> once we're kind of through some of that biological things, it is looking at uh, those components of the, of the psychology, if you will. Yeah, I think I had something brilliant to say and I forgot, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, well, mic drop. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Jason did good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, but in the right, in the in the way that it's it's compounded, right? If an individual does have something, you know, coming out of the pandemic, like you know, severe anxiety, or they were isolated and it led to a depressive state, and through that depressive state and isolation, the liquor store was across the street, and then they oh, added the alcohol yeah. to it, and you know, it starts compounding in that way, and then the social aspect at the bottom rung, the isolate, you know, the isolatory mm. feature of it. You know, we're talking about somebody who's getting hit at all three levels of this over a period of time and then walking out into the world. And I think we can start to hear the real conflict and challenges that it takes within this because when somebody enters an episode, you know, like peaks, whether it's a 30 or a 45 or a 90 day stay through the levels of care, throughout that process, we're, we're battling a lot of different things. And it's and it feels kind of nearly impossible to start addressing like every yeah. single feature alongside of it. And so we get a lot of intensity, especially in the first two to three weeks of any treatment episode. Uh, you, know, me, you know, for me, I, I treat an AMA within the first two weeks when you know, it's really a condition of the first few days. But within that time frame, I think we're recognizing the craving states. Yeah. And for the viewers out there um, who are familiar or not familiar with insurance policies and basis, right? How do you point at bio, uh, in insurance terms, biomedical conditions, right, that are leading to or requiring an inpatient stay or a detox stay at the end of the day. The reality of a biomedical condition, namely for insurers, I mean, alcohol has easier components of it, right? Yeah. You can send somebody to the emergency room, you can say, okay, we have psoriasis of the liver and inflamed liver and these types of things. Um, but those are things that are gonna heal in time, you know, in the absence of drinking as well, so they don't hold a ton of weight as a biomedical condition, right? Um, and craving state is the largest biomedical condition that insurers really lean into. Uh, and over time, we want to see those craving states go down. But at the same time, like other diseases that exist out there or other you know, medical conditions, we can't open the hood of the brain and go, there's the craving state, and we just got to unpluck that thing and get it out of there. And so within treatment episodes, with, even within a biomedical you know, or a biopsychosocial model, uh, in that regard, it becomes really challenging to, to, to really try and address all of these types of things, especially because one of the first things we're going to experience, right, is resistance in the process. Sure. And, and it's a natural resistance. It's a discomfort. Something was working, not sustainably, yeah. but working just enough, as we've talked about uh, on past episodes, 
where kind of pulling that back, you start to res you know, arrive at this conflict and, oh, I don't need that, I need this other thing. Um, but we're trying to state, well, we have to do these things so we can arrive at this thing like trauma work, right, at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Anyways, trying to do a little tangent, see if no, I can. No, I think I, I, I it came back. Okay, so, yeah. yeah. I think to speak to, one of the key components of the biopsychosocial model is this idea of a coping mechanism, right? And really looking at the substance use uh, as a behavior really at, is a coping mechanism that is, uh, it's just very maladaptive, but it's how the individual is uh, typically managing stress, anxiety, um, sometimes trauma, uh, you know, emotional dysregulation, whatever the case may be, um, and also physiological symptoms. I mean, somebody may actually have chronic pain as well if they're, and they, are, they have opiate use disorder just through dependence. Um, so when you look at it as a coping mechanism rather than as something that I have an addiction that is inside of my brain that I have to like unplug like you were talking about, it gives a different, it helps you see the, the person a little bit more holistically, you know, to use a, another word that people love to throw around, so. And we did an episode on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. That was episode 5,400. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, look it up. <laughs> something, find it. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I think that it just and it helps to highlight that all of these things are connected, right? Like that that biological component bleeds into the psychological component, which can actually be a feedback to the biological component, and then you bring in the social aspects, which are um, the the, tr the external environment and all of the stimuli that are just constantly being bombarding the individual and you've, they've got this one thing, this maladaptive yet effective coping mechanism that we very rudely take away immediately. And uh, to, I think that there's an expectation that that healing happens a little bit more quickly than it really does. And you know, people think it's you know, 30 days and it's more like 18 months before you really start to see some pretty significant um, shifts in, in the brain. Um, so, but yeah, to your tangent, first two weeks are really hard. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah. And our uh, medical staff and residential staff and clinical staff are absolutely brilliant in those first two weeks because it can be very, um, it's hard on everybody. Yeah, yeah, it creates a tough environment. So we had, we kind of talked, do you want to hit? I did, I did want to hit yeah. the one thing, because I, I don't want to, I don't know if we're pivoting off of this, but the social component is really important. Like yeah, absolutely. In, in, and yeah. it sounds like probably the most obvious thing maybe to, to contemplate as we consider this model, but it is, it, it, the people can't get better in a box, right? I, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned cirrhosis, and, and I think about, I've, I've talked to a lot of clients over the years who... I've talked to with cirrhosis and they're like, I can never drink again because my liver will fail, but it didn't prevent them from drinking before. So then we add on like maybe you're depressed and all of that, but on top of all that, like what is your support system and what does that mm. look like and how do we nurture that and how do we, uh, we, we spend some time in our curriculum contemplating like who is relationally in our life and how do we want to bring healthy people closer and how do we create space for that by pushing maybe some of the more negative or, or less positive people and things in our life further out. And that, that component of the biopsychosocial model, I think, uh, is pretty significant yeah. to contemplate. I think it's actually the most dynamic, really. I think because yeah. it is the thing that you have, well, it depends. You have 
either a lot of control or very little. You know, like to to pluck somebody out of this really safe um, healing environment for 45 days, where they just are, they feel good, they're clear-headed, they are, they're on the the, they're taking the first steps on the path towards long-term recovery, and um, they're doing so in the safety with people who love them, care about them, and really want them to thrive. And, and we pluck them out of that, and we put them right back into their old environment. And to think that that's not going to impact, I don't care how much individual work you do and how much insight you gain and how much, uh, how much you're able to sort of um, reframe your world and, and see things more clearly, man, that external world is just going to come racing back. And it's going to trigger everything around you, including those old synapses and thinking patterns and behaviors. Um, so if you're not acknowledging that social component, if you're not actually really preparing people by walking them through, like, hey, guess what? What happens when you have that first fight with your partner? Yeah. Like, what happens? Because that used to happen every single night before you got here. So what's, how is that not going to continue to happen moving forward? And what is the new coping strategy that you're going to use? Um, if you're not addressing that, then I think you're, you're missing one of the most crucial pieces yeah. of actual long-term recovery. And to that point, I think, I think if you're going to do biopsychosocial approach, you have to have a family component too. Absolutely, to yeah. as many clients as uh, can yeah. benefit from it. And that can be biological. Yeah, it could yeah. be biological or family of choice, whichever. Yeah, right. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it might be uh, building a family of choice, if absolutely. you will. But, but teaching new dynamics and new ways to communicate that that don't involve. Um, shame or control and, yeah. and contain good, healthy boundaries, I think is such a key component. To yeah, family to work is actually really good at IOP because yeah. that's when the client is back in the home and they are experiencing all of those things that uh, they were really convinced they had worked through and already resolved while they were in treatment and then, uh, crap, it all comes back up again. And not only are they experiencing the same internal issues, the family seeing the same behaviors, and so everybody gets really scared. And um, it actually takes a lot of practice. Um, that's, I think that's the other thing about recovery that people don't really talk about a lot. It's really about practice. It takes time to relearn how to live your life. Right. You know? And uh, yeah, so I think, again, um, that social component just has to be reiterated. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me, and for the viewers out there, we did an episode with Dr. Alardi and uh, Sebastian Younger, uh, Sebastian Younger, the author of tribe and freedom and war and a few other books that we mentioned in that episode. But in the tribe book, he goes at length to describe trauma symptoms for veterans. And 80% of uh, uh, PTSD is short-term PTSD for veterans within the event taking place and within two years. And what we discussed on the episode is how adaptive it actually is to form a, a behavioral response yeah. around it. You know, so, so if you're in a war zone, for example, and a, guns are going off and it happens you know, rapidly, you want to get on the ground and you know, crawl and get out of the way and, and move towards safety. But now you're at a birth, kid's birthday party and a balloon pops and you're doing the same type of thing. Well, in the war environment, right, of course that is an adaptive trait Absolutely. and it's bleeding over. Well, the hope is that in time that'll resolve itself um, you know, uh, uh, organically in that way. What it comes to for long-term PTSD for the 20% of veterans suffering with the long-term is we go from an adaptive feature and years later we are still with every pop in the room, right, crawling on yeah. the ground and trying to find that sort of safety. So 
the, the thing that I really want to draw the attention to out of that is we, we're talking about a behavior. And we can create an awareness around the behavior, right, within a setting through talk therapy, through a, a variety of different ways. But if we are within the treatment episode, we're in that safe place, and we're not in the world where balloons are popping and that type of thing. So now we move into the social aspect of things. And I think this is what is often missed, like when we think about it, right, we were talking about it earlier, the pink cloud event that kind of takes yeah. place in treatment, new perspective. I believe I'm self-actualizing. I believe I'm getting insights that I've never had in before around my condition, the causes, the correlations to my condition. And so now I'm just going to go out into the world. But what we, what we cannot change in a time-limited episode, and this is true across any treatment program, are rooted behaviors. Mm -hmm. It requires this practice and ongoing Absolutely. mechanism right in the outside world. Um, and I think that's what makes the challenge this so difficult as a challenge. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, family systems, why wouldn't they let you know Johnny go back home and live in the basement again? Because he sounds different. Yeah. He looks better than he's ever looked before, and he's talking better, and he has all these goals and ideas and things that he didn't have going into. You guys, great job. Now come home, right. and we greatly miss the challenge in the time it's going to take to really coordinate those behaviors, and all of the communal and uh, you know, outpatient treatment modalities are going to be required to support the individual as they go through that, yeah. uh, as, and especially as they encounter new challenges along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, so. Yeah. I mean, all of those old behaviors and patterns are they're going to pop right back up mm -hmm. again, unless you. I mean, there's this old and again when we were talking earlier, this old kind of 12-step adage that you know if you want to get sober, you only have to do you only have to change one thing. And that's everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. it's so, so tough. But it works yeah. if, it wor if you work. It works. <laughs> but the idea is that you have to actually nurture change pretty, uh, like, you have to be really intentional about it and, and look at the things that you can change. I mean, then it goes all the way back to the serenity prayer. My gosh, this is turning into a 12-step episode, which, I mean. We'll get a, out of it. It's a throwback. Yeah, yeah. it's a throwback. <laughs> so. Well, it's a, I actually think it's a perfect segue okay. to what uh -oh. what may be missing from the biopsychosocial model, which uh, is that spiritual component. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, okay, we deal with their body, we deal with their brain, and we deal with the people around them. But there's this other piece that I think you know. We, you and I were pretty enamored by that yeah. conversation at the symposium, I'm talking about how uh, adding that fourth kind of uh, dimension to this approach means helping people find some meaning and find yeah. um, some mindfulness in different ways, I think can be um, a great uh, adjunct, at least, to this model, or uh, and a, maybe a critical adjunct. To well, it, it gives know. it sustainability, yeah. right? Like, it gives it longevity, because you're talking about identity, purpose, meaning, things that actually uh, become their foundational values that you hold on to, and that you can, and that are actually pretty good at redirecting uh, thought redirecting behavior because you start to live outside of values that you've really committed to. And um, yeah, I think that it's a, a really, I'd never heard of that spiritual component until yeah. we were at the Same. symposium. And um, you know, in talking to the psychiatrist, it actually, you know, the word spiritual can be heavy sometimes and it has a lot of um, you know, mixed connotations. So, but having it almost be, it's almost like biopsychosocial existential as this other component, because it is a search for meaning at that mm -hmm. point. And that is something that um, you, once you learn that you have control of that, that that's actually within your power to identify and establish, that is, um, 
that's a tool, that's an amazing coping skill. Like that's an amazing tool because you can reframe pretty much anything at that point. So um, yeah, I, I loved it. I love that concept. Which is the philosophy now. Yeah. Existentialism. Yeah. So what's existentialism? Yeah, so uh, existence precedes essence. <laughs> right. Hey, yeah. go for take a bathroom drinks. break. Yeah, yeah, bathroom break, kids. Yeah. This is going to take a while. Yeah. I got you, team. Uh, so this is great. This is directional. I was, I was worried about you guys. You're all tuckered out in the beginning, yeah. but you guys are really coming into your own here, so I love it. I think before we get into, you know, how is this model namely beneficial or, or as a contemporary, you know, model of treatment, how it's beneficial and why we use something like this or why we call it integrated care and get into those features. Let's kind of just quickly, you know, thumb through maybe what other models, you know, might be because I think the other models that we might speak to are conflating um, that, oh, well, I got my SSRI or my, my SNRI, so like why do I even have to do this talk therapy thing right at the end of the day? And um, you know, if the symptomology is suppressed right, right through the disease model, let's say, and we've talked about it on past episodes. I mean, go back, the Dr. Lardy episodes, uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley, a senior fellow at the Meadows, um, spoke directly to the disease model of care and charitably in the episode, always curious about what he can learn and add to the model uh, as an experience. But if we believe as a world that SSRIs control serotonin levels and serotonin is leading to depression, then I should just be able to go to a place like Peaks, get the SSRIs and be on my way. But we're learning that these monotherapeutic values aren't yeah. you know, efficient, not even really sufficient in and yeah. of themselves, and really lack uh, outcomes by themselves. 85% of all uh, of, of Mo of individuals who are suffering from major depressive disorder are just simply using SSRIs that are only 30% effective uh, in that regard. So yeah. do the mass, it's ineffective, right, at the end of the day. So, um, but maybe we can just quickly jog through model of care uh, that, or the disease model of care, uh, the choice or moral model of care, mm -hmm. and just see how these things are maybe still sitting in the psyche of family systems that think, okay, these are the things that are actually true, and so the output should be SSRIs will get rid yeah. of the depression because we're sending them to peaks and they're gonna sit with you know, the psychiatrist physician and so forth. Yeah. Which one do you want? I, I'll just start and then you clean it up. Okay, cool. Okay. So, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think there are, I think there's room uh, in the field mm -hmm. for different models of care, right? Absolutely. Like I don't, think, yeah. I don't think we have a corner market on this concept of biopsychosocial <laughs> uh, existential model of care, but I think um, when you look at it, you know, like AA um, arguably is a kind of combines a, a medical model of care, calling alcohol as a disease, and you have an allergy. They use that terminology, kind of along with the moral model, where mm -hmm. like uh, you're screwing up, quit screwing up. Right. And to be honest with you, there there are people in this population. There are people that that makes the most sense to them. That like that matches like kind of I'm a screw up. I I can admit yeah. that every day, and um, I'm going to go and uh, confirm my moral shortcomings frequently. And that confession, uh, and then a book kind of can guide me through that moral shortcoming. And community. Um, and, yeah. And that's what AA has always done, and, right. and that is a great component of AA as well. But um, so I think there's room for that. There are people that really, even that come through peaks, that are like, I can't wait to get back and get to my AA meetings because uh, you guys don't offer it enough here, and, and I need, because um, yeah. I need 
to say every day that I'm an alcoholic and uh, I'm powerless over alcohol and my life's unmanageable. And like those things, um, that could be really helpful for some people. Um, the problem is I think with that is it's really exclusionary, whereas I think other models I think can be more inclusionary. And I think to your point, the medical model, which just says it's a disease and so therefore uh, there's a solution to this malady, um, usually in the form of a medical intervention, that also seems to fall short. But again, it can be helpful for some, or, or it's an important component part of the biopsychosocial model of care. Yeah, and I think that both of the, those models actually also have this kind of assumption that the addiction will always be within you, right? Like you will always have this disease or you will always have this moral defect that will forever make you susceptible and forever identify you as an addict. Like it's, I need to, I'm so-so and I'm an alcoholic. Like mm -hmm. those, both of those models really lean into character and identity and they kind of define it for you. So they're, I mean, the, while you were talking, Jason, it's, it, AA actually has a, a bio, psycho, and social component. It really does. Yeah, it, does. it just is sort of umbrellaed around a, a kind of moral um, or choice-based, um, I don't know, filter, I guess, is kind of what you're pushing it all through. And it doesn't, and I think in that sense, it makes it pretty exclusionary because it will reinforce things like shame. So if you have a lot of trauma, if you have a lot of depression, if you have a lot of PTSD, if you have... Um, I think if you have a lot of underlying mental health, it's, I don't know how effective it is without additional interventions. Um, and yeah, but it's a, it, I, it does serve its purpose and it has a place. And these aren't pure models of care. Like yeah, harm yeah. reduction is considered a model of care. Yeah. But of course, that also uses these components as right. well. Um, and harm reduction can be so many things. It absolutely is. Yeah. Just, yeah. So I think, I, Purely separating them all out, there's, they're all kind of Venn diagrams. They all kind of overlap each other in a variety of ways, I would yeah. say. It feels like reductive. It, yeah. Biopsychosocial is kind of the, the new yeah. sort of paradigm, but it can be reduced into these, or these, right. you know, AA, uh, you know, disease model and so forth, reduced into yeah. the biopsychosocial. Absolutely. They all yeah. have components, but the biopsychosocial model doesn't seem to have the edges or the, the feeling of restrictions around yeah. the level of care, like an ability to see past something into something like, hey, I think you know, the existential moment here matters right. you know, in that type of way, or the, um, the room to shift from spirituality into a term like existential, right? So that maybe people can better hear what you know, the approach might be for them if they have become, in a way, you know, deaf to the concept of spirituality. Yeah you know, before entering treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, I, I, you know, the biopsychosocial model really, for me anyways, um, takes away the pressure to I try to identify why. Like, it doesn't, it's, there's no one answer why we do anything. It's everything. Mm -hmm. The reason, why am I who I am? Because of everything that's happened to me up until this moment. Like, I cannot go back and find that one time that has, that, has really um, defined a, a behavior that is that I've reinforced on my own for however long. It's uh, and when you don't have to focus on the why you, as much, or at least you're not looking for causation, you it, it gives you the freedom to explore all of the other variables that are out there. It allows you to see things on a much more macro level. Um, rather than just saying, I'm just gonna take the disease piece and we're just gonna do the disease piece and I'm gonna do this really well. Again, that's taking somebody and putting them in a box. 
right. in a vortex where there's no yeah. other things around it, and it's not going to work. All opioid addiction can be resolved through Suboxone MA. yeah, or exactly. you know, MAT, right? Yeah. And there's an incredible harm reduction value to it. It saves yeah. many lives in the process, but it uh, doesn't always objectively work for each independent subjective experience around right. why a person uses drugs or alcohol in the first place. A common thing that I've talked about in past episodes around that as like an example is, you know, there's a difference between subjectively speaking, a person who takes an opiate for the first time to get high versus like, you know, a dad skating down the driveway with his daughter, mm -hmm. falls, breaks his knee, gets into a hospital, takes an opioid to resolve the pain, and then in the process becomes addicted, right? Yeah. There's two existentially different and subjective experiences for which one pill cannot account for both situations yeah. in all instances. And in the end, like, is that really what we want to explore over 45 days? Mm -hmm. I, to me, a more interesting right, question. Totally. Yeah, it's like, okay, so who are you right now? And uh, who do you want to be when you, in the future? You know, like, those are pretty good questions to ask somebody that give you actual directional goals, right? It, you're not, you're really looking at right now and saying, all right, this, no matter how I got here, I'm here and I'm unhappy and I need to change. It's like, cool, what do you want to change into? Like, where are you going from now? Uh, where do you want to end up? Where is this path going to lead to? And then you can actually nail down a plan. You can start working through things. And while you're working through that plan, then you start to do that exploration. You, you develop that insight. You start to see and do those deep dives uh, clinically that allow you to sort of see how maybe you've framed the world or created narratives or, um, or, or just sort of taken uh, maybe an approach that is maladaptive that you thought was actually really healthy. So it's... Um, it just, for me, it also makes for like a much more interesting uh, treatment episode rather than like, all right, well, let's talk about that, how you went to that party that one time and now you're, you know, now you're homeless. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you went to that one rave and we, it all went downhill from there. It's yeah. like, that doesn't make any sense. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It, and it speaks to like, you know, many people go to the rave and many people will try the <laughs> yeah. ecstasy and many people will walk away and not do it again yeah. and some people will move forward and form a habit around it, you know, as well too. And I think that there's, you know, to your point earlier around like this isn't a necessarily a thing that you're living with that's always going to follow you throughout the rest of your life because we know, you know, we were talking about it at the, um, at the Winter Symposium recently and the psychedelic panel that we had put on, you know, that... Um, you know, to the point I think I want to make is like we've, we're forming behaviors over a long period of time and we can go, okay, I want to change these behaviors and move into this direction. But post-treatment, we might be resolving behaviors that are decades, yeah. you know, impregnated in the brain, right? And our responses to the world. And so the challenge becomes on the other side of that, um, figuring out a path forward, not just with this great thought of wanting to change, but how I'm going to actually do that yeah. in real time. Oh, the how, yeah. it's my, it's <laughs> you my know, favorite. The how component. It, yeah, and it's Jason's I, and this, favorite too. And so. I think this is also where <laughs> it, it bleeds into like, you know, some treatment websites say, well, 73% of all of our patients go on to get a job after treatment. It's like, That's, is that the outcome that is right. desired? It's an important outcome within a capitalistic, you know, yeah. you know, society that we live in. And it's something we appreciate when a person ties their boots in the morning and goes out and gets a job. But at the same time, that doesn't really resolve yeah. anything we're talking about other than something like, okay, that's one behavior change, they're holding yeah. a job. But if you're white knuckling it in that moment, just holding a job and you got all these stressors going on, like how miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, being a drug dealer is a job, so 
I think that's it. it. <laughs> it is. W2? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it. I feel like it's more of an under the table okay. thing, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting, uh, that metric doesn't make sense uh, without context, right? That's like taking that one thing and we're gonna say, hey, we'll measure all success based on this one. If you can do this one thing that we killed it, yeah. you know, we nailed it. And maybe you just have like a really robust Indeed portal and yeah. that's actually your, the best part of your program, I don't know. Yeah. And, yeah, and one other conflict that I wanted to add to it just for the viewers out there and part of that panel discussion too and not just carrying out behaviors but that there is this strange um, moment between after the age of like, I think it's somewhere between 24 and 26 in the SAMHSA data where 50% of users who prior to the age of 26 would have received per the DSM-5 a substance use disorder. They would meet criteria for a, a substance use disorder. But for some reason after the age of 26, 50% of them drop off and are no longer uh, qualified in that sense, for lack of better words, within the DSM-5 for having a continued substance use disorder. So we have real data out there that somehow people form these behaviors and then somehow it just falls off and they stop doing them uh, at the end of the day. And to the job point, I think that accelerates people's attention. Well, I want to become this engineer. I want sure. to do this type of thing. And so there are things that can change behaviors quite naturally and organically within our society that don't also require treatment. But it also alludes to the fact that if we're just going to anchor into something like the disease model, we're losing 50% of that suddenly. And mm -hmm. why is that happening, right? right. And I, so, so I think those types of data sets reinforce the biopsycho, you know, social approach that maybe this person is continuing to use maybe after the age of 26 because it's more than just the biology that's yeah. taking place or some symptomology that's pushing it forward, right? Yeah, and, and you know, as you're talking about all this in the job measurement, it isn't, like, I feel like there's so many behaviors that change as a result of doing good work, of doing mm -hmm. good biopsychosocial work. It's like people will just become happier and they will get a job, they'll want to be productive yeah. and that sort of thing. And, and it isn't about, like it just, it's just so much more than just getting people to be compliant with behavior changes specifically. Because yeah. that's no freedom at all. Right. Really. It's, no, it's no relief at all to just figure out what behaviors are going to make other people happy and then do that. I think for me, one of the best indicators has always been uh, you really start to see self-respect come back. Um, there's a value. People start to recognize that they have value again. And once you start on that path, um, it's, uh, I, think, I think you're in a good place. Because you have a lot of, that's a, a lot of runway there. Because you can start to give yourself grace. You can start to give the world grace. You can start to really focus on, um, all of a sudden, your journey, you're worthy of it again. And before, I think that self-worth, when, when we meet people those first two weeks, it doesn't really exist. People feel pretty worthless. Yeah. And that is a very, very hard place to uh, exist in, yeah. period. And, and we've talked about it too. I think you know, the great challenge is that we can make this a safe place. In time, I sure. think, for all the struggles we go through between us and the clients at the mm -hmm. end of the day, there is this natural, like, you guys care, and I get that, and I'm grateful to be here, right? But, so we're creating a safe place. We're building trust with the individual. They have to go back into the unsafety yeah. of the world. And this is where the social aspects come in because, you know, around a job, you know, we have, you know, clients come in, I don't want to be a burger flipper. Like, who told you that's the value of that job, yeah. right? As a society, as a social aspect of this and what I'm getting at, maybe 
all jobs are fairly valuable, right? And the individuals that are behind the counter taking our, you know, McDonald's orders, all that sort of stuff, we as a society say, well, that's not like kind of a job, right? And it doesn't allow for that type of safety and the immersion back into it because now this is a thing I have to get through to get to that next yeah. thing that I can actually feel value and needed uh, within at the end of the day. But I think, I've, you know, we don't have to wax too philosophical about this, but I've been in a taco, you know, Bell drive-through, and like, don't totally love myself after going through the process, but I do love some of the food or whatever. But sure. the experience of it matters. If that person on the intercom gets on and goes, "What are you here for today, man? I'm gonna get you the best burrito you've ever had," and some excitement around that, for all the viewers out there who've experienced kind of a drive-through atmosphere like that, you're like, "Shit, I actually feel really good right now." Yeah you know, in this moment, and I'm connecting with somebody, and they've made that journey better, and for that reason, their job matters, right? And so, I don't get too political about it, but in the social aspect of things, this is what Younger and uh, these past guests that have been on Peaks, Alardi and so forth, and even ourselves at Peaks are talking about, is that we can't guarantee the safety, but from a social aspect, you never know who you're talking to, yeah. whether it's a restaurant, at a bank, you know, somebody might be really going through something in their life and how we treat them, helps them move forward in their own process and journey. And so this social aspect is probably one of the deepest lacunas of how do you fix that to support the individual once they get outside of here, uh, you know, in that regard. And in other aspects of it as well, too, now, you know, a family system that's drinking, now they're out, it's Thanksgiving or whatever, and, oh, I'll just have a water. Like, now we're treating people differently, yeah. and that's awkward, and that feels shameful, and that the atmosphere is changing because I'm a part of it. And so, anyways, that, I just wanted to highlight as some of these social factors that are quite challenging for a person to transition into. I think that um, one of the one of the things that you that you maybe think about is this idea of placing our value externally outside mm -hmm. of ourselves. Like I am valuable because I have a good job. I am valuable because uh, I am normal like everybody else. I am, and uh, because I fit in. So having your value be. Um, basically decided upon things that you can't control. As the, one of the most empowering tools you can give somebody is the ability to actually just be able to, you decide your value, like it's internal. You carry it with you wherever you go. That way, no matter if you are, you know, performing brain surgery or, or um, you know, giving you your Mexican pizza in the Taco Bell drive-through, your value doesn't change because it's, you're carrying it. You decide. You, you hold on to that. It's not something that's ever outside of you. It's always something that's inside of you. And again, and I think that's when the, the sort of spiritual existential component of the biopsychosocial model, biopsychosocial spiritual slash existential model um, becomes really powerful because you don't, and it gives people some, it allows them to navigate really tough situations, especially if they're going back into the same environment. It's it's a, it gives you a little, um, it's a, just a little something in your back pocket that allows you to be able to recalibrate when if you get a little bit frazzled. So, so to, to take uh, the viewers out here, I think, you know, so let's talk about, because at Peaks we have an integrated model of care, right, where we nurture both as substance use disorders and mental health disorders uh, at the same time within the same model, but we're also tacking on a lot of this you know, biopsychosocial uh, implementation throughout the duration of treatment. Um, so how, how effective is this, you know, really? And why, and why are we trying to do so many things within such a limited, you know, time frame? Clinical officer. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Good. curriculum guy. Yeah, curriculum guy. <clears throat> to take your question, like I think um, this biopsychosocial model of care, like it doesn't say for addiction use or for depression. <laughs> yeah. Like um, implicit in this model is just this treatment of suffering that we've been talking mm -hmm. about here at Peaks, and. Um, somebody who's depressed needs just as much social support as somebody who is four months over or four weeks over from alcohol use. Um, and again, people depressed, uh, their bodies can become deconditioned due to lack of exercise and that sort of thing, just as much as somebody who can't get off the couch because they are drinking so much. So, um, so really, you know, I think we, we've designed a curriculum and continue to work to, to perfect it, not just in the clinical lens, but, you know, from the approaches of all our departments to treat people um, in, through this way, through this lens, um, and treat them as humans, and to address uh, the needs that brought them there, and the behaviors or lack of behaviors, lack of support, and that sort of thing that brought them into uh, our program. And so... Um, we, we've talked about this. I think the, distinct, the distinction between alcohol use disorder and other psychological uh, diagnoses is artificial, and it is based upon the history of our industry um, and also prejudices. And so the alignment of the treatment of that um, probably would be how all of this would have started if that wasn't the case. That's my response to your question. Damn, Jason. Yeah, that was really good, actually. Yeah, was yeah. That? I was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, no. I just made it up on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, people are complex, right? Like, we're dynamic. We are, um, it, this is wild. Like, what we're doing right now, like, life is insane. It's yeah. really, really, really crazy. And I think that we just acknowledge that, you know? By acknowledging it, you start to regain a sense of control, you know? Change is really hard. Like, it just is hard. and. Ultimately, um, that's what people are seeking. So you give them all the tools that you possibly can. Uh, some of them will stick, some of them won't. But in the process, you are also, to Jason's point, acknowledging them as like a valued, worthy, whole human being in this wild, crazy world of ours. Yeah. And um, I don't know, there's something very... Uh, it just feels good to be able to see people as people. You know, it takes a lot of judgment away and allows you to kind of cut through the, the BS and, and really get to the heart of things. Yeah. But in the, the challenges within it, right, like the biological, right, like if you're not feeling well, you can't move into movement. And movement yeah. is so important in our historical timeline as human beings to... Uh, wellness, experiencing sunlight, experiencing walks, going out and doing something like a project like getting water for the tribe, like these types of things have real internal value. Uh, but if you're suffering within a treatment episode, you can't access it. You know, some people come in and say something like, well, you know, uh, I'm here and I, I, I only, you know, I need to work on my nutritional value. That's true. And I guess what I'm pointing out here is the difficulties in approaching these services because it's difficult to contain everybody's biopsychosocial elements, you know, within any given treatment episode. And I think all treatment centers do what they can to address it. But, 
you know, to have sort of the nutritional salad bar, we'll call it, of like, hey, this is how you're going to eat this and you're going to do it. I mean, people are coming at peaks, they haven't eaten sometimes in days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, let alone sleep and that type of thing. So getting them biologically attuned nutritionally is like, we're just, you know, it's like, just eat first, yeah. you know, and then we'll discover something like that. Um, but if hunger is the real rooted need and I'm not in a psychological position to entertain micros and macronutrients, right, then talking about it is, is going to be ineffective right at the end of the day. So, and I think this is where it gets more into that sort of holistic attitude of like, you know, approaching somebody in one context just is not going to work for the entire group. And I think that's what makes substance use or the treatment of substance use disorders and mental health disorders so complex at the end of the day because we have all of these resources right at peaks recovery but you can't just give it to all of them because they're not all going to receive it in the same way and it's the problem with or to be charitable to the other models right um, you know whether it's 12 steps you know moral choice you know disease model or whatever these become restrictive ways of approaching treatment, right? Because you're taking an individual and you're stating, okay, this condition is true because this model is true. And so you're moving somebody through it as a yeah. care, but it's restrictive because it's missing the potential for all the other opportunities for why the person's suffering, right? Well, and I think that speaks to the importance of indiv individualized care, you know, like by meeting people where they are and not trying to push them through uh, an algorithm, you know, it's like, oh, you are this model, go this way, do these things, and then you'll be fine. Um, but actually recognizing that literally every single individual's treatment is going to be different, period, you know. Um, but there are, some, there are some components, and there are some, uh, I don't know, there's an arc to it, right? Like you come in, and I think the first, the one thing that connects all of our treatment is just that, it's connection. You start off with these like human connections and the first one is just the nurse saying, hey, are you hungry? You know, and then going and getting them food. First one's admissions actually. Oh well, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> hey, are you scared? Yeah. That's basically yeah. what they're asking, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you wanna not be scared anymore? Yeah. And you get these sort of invitations to engage with the world in a way that you haven't been able to in a long time and then you're cared for, you're nurtured, and by the end, by the time you're leaving, you are actually just cooking food for the people there. You know, like you're cooking for your housemates on a Sunday. So you see this evolution, and then there's all of the millions of things that happen in between there, but there is a, I think, a, a pretty consistent arc that is built off of, you know, it's like we said, the, the opposite of suffering is connection. And so I think that that becomes um, a really crucial component as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe taking it out here, you know, we were talking about it at the office before we did the episode today. It, a person leaves treatment and says, I feel good, I feel great, and they go back into the same environment um, is one way to look at it. Another thing I've talked about a lot or we've drawn attention to is like, well, that place didn't work for me because they didn't work on the trauma. The things, what I'm curious is about is what we can leave the viewers with. If, if those are rooted internal things that are not being operated on, I mean, that's why case management exists, right? We talked about the complexity of the biopsychosocial that if it takes two to three weeks just to work through the psychological associations of, I know I have access to something that can help me, you guys just took that away, you know, <laughs> right off the rip. 
and I'm debating between my, how I feel physically and what I know can work for me psychologically, and at the same time, I gotta wait for these SSRIs, SNRIs, all these medications to kick in, uh, right? We spend a lot of time negotiating the biological. No wonder we didn't work on the trauma, right? Mm. Because we had to move through these phases of treatment. So what can we share with the family systems in taking this out that when they hear this from their loved one, uh, how, what can we do to encourage the best path forward? Because we're, we're not gonna go back into a treatment episode. So you, know, you relapse you know, in the process, you didn't work on the trauma that you believe is the cause of your uh, suffering here. And then you go back into treatment, but again, we're in the same resistance, the biopsychological, because you were doing drugs for the last six months, right? And so how do we charitably get out of this kind of loop that it feels like, right? And what can we do to encourage families or empower family systems probably more appropriately as they navigate some of these loops that happen? Because statistically speaking, especially for SUD, um, and this is not to you know, promote relapse by any occurrences, but the general average is now between two to four times, but maybe we can have some sort of, you know, instead of a, this loop, take relapses to lapses and contain or maintain, I should say, sort of a directional approach to it. So how do, we, how do we empower family systems to keep leaning into the process without thinking none of this works? So I'll, I'll, I'd like to answer that question first. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a shift of mentality, right? When, when somebody is in AA and they get a chip and it says, I have three years sober, and then they go out and they have two drinks, and they have to go to their next meeting and turn that chip in if, you know, and, and get a new what they call desire chip and they're back at square one, or square zero actually. And um, that mentality says that that person failed. It, it erased the, the four years or whatever of recovery that they got and they are back just like somebody who is on their very first day of ever trying to get off of a drug. And that mentality still permeates and in, in kind of a medical type model, like people with you know, chronic illnesses like diabetes and that sort of thing, it's common for them to have spikes in their blood sugar at times and for their meds to stop working a little bit so they have to go get hospital intervention for a little while and to kind of re-regulate and get, get on the appropriate meds or, or maybe um, try a different program or new technology or whatever. And that's perfectly normal in the medical setting and it isn't judged, it isn't like, None of the other diabetes treatment worked. It worked for a period of time, served its purpose, and now um, it just needs some refinement. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay what a relapse does and, and what a lapse does and how devastating that can be. But I'm also saying that it's compounded by it wipes everything out and people have to start from square one. That, the truth is somewhere between those two things. Right. Yeah, because then you're battling the idea of failure yeah. and the shame and the guilt and all of the things that have probably been, at least to some degree, motivating the, the behaviors that you're trying to yeah. avoid. Yeah, so giving, um, I think giving families a lot of grace, more than anything, teaching them how to give themselves grace. Um, I don't know, I think working on the fear is really important and being very honest. Like yeah. you just have to be, you know, I'm a pragmatic guy, I'm a realist and um, it's so interesting how much of our thinking is magical. And so actually having, like breaking that down and doing it in a way that is really compassionate and really actually normalizing. It's like, this is going to be hard, but it's also okay that it's hard. Like it should, it, don't run away from 
the difficulty because then you're actually running back into the problem. So, yeah. And and for me, I you know just for the viewers out there, anybody watching this, like consider what it is in your life to have a behavioral change, right? Take anything like going to the gym in the new year. I'm going to lose weight this year. Like whatever those challenges are, gyms fill up for January, and yeah. then the memberships go away for the rest of the year, right? As a process. I just got done running a marathon, as you guys know, a few weeks ago, and it's. Imperative. It's crucial that you rest on the other side of that and let your body heal. I mean, it's an intense activity, and it does really mess up your body in a variety of different ways. Um, and in that regard, though, just sitting there knowing I can't run because I got calf cramps and that type of thing was so challenging to sit still in that moment and just let my body heal. And I'm talking about something that's rather benign, you know, compared mm -hmm. to a you know a 10-year addiction, you know, or something of that nature. Uh, but at the same time, it's so challenging to change these behaviors. And that feels like a positive behavior, right? Yeah. You're running, you're taking care of yourself and your body. But at the same time, I experience the real difficulty of just sitting still and like avoiding going outside for a quick mile, you know, in that regard. When we become conditioned in these things, it is difficult to let go of the prior aspect, no matter how important or healthy it is to change moving yeah. forward, right? And so if we're all being charitable to behavior change uh, for ourselves in our own lives, whatever that is, how we show up in our relationships, how we show up for, you know, our kids, how we show up at work and professionalism and all these types of things, uh, and, and causing us to change in the process and noticing how difficult that is, I think we can be more charitable as a society to how difficult these processes are, especially for you know, individuals with psychological diagnoses uh, like SUD and mental health you know, primary disorders. So um, in that regard, keep loving on people, people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and anything you guys want to add to that? No, I think that was no, great. No, that was great. All right, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, Jason checked his watch, so I was like, did you get a... Uh, I, I have a do you thousand wanna, chats. Do you want to let us know what's going on? No. At work, Jason? <laughs> yeah. I, I, my wrist has been ringing a little bit, too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, We just push it down. Yeah. yeah. At work, their watches <laughs> ring differently than mine does, that's for sure. And with that, folks, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Biopsychosocial Stressors. Please take into account everything we've been talking about, the complexities for what informs treatment, how an individual moves through treatment, and what it takes on the other side of a treatment episode to really discover something like a cure, to discover wellness in the process. And this is gonna look entirely different for each individual. And if we go into this with a more you know, sort of open heart, open mind mentality, I think we can discover in the process a better way to treat all of these individuals who are suffering, not just individuals who arrive at peaks, but commonly speaking in the world, we all have challenges. And the better we show up for people, I think the better outcome overall. So enough with my politics. Uh, it's another great episode of Finding Peaks. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, uh, taking this out. Finding Peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Coover's, I know, is going to put some, I'm missing it. It's like information at findingpeaks.com, something like that. Your thoughts, questions, ideas uh, for these episodes. We're listening to you, the viewers, so continue to uh, ask those questions. This episode came about today from all of your thoughtful visits uh, to our website and this biopsychosocial page in particular. And on top of that, we got the TikToks, we got the Facebooks, the Instagrams, all those types of things. Um, that can be a negative world to live in, social media, but on our social media, it's all positive. We're just talking about recovery <laughs> and trying to get people well at the end of the day. So uh, with that, thanks for joining us for episode 6,922. We'll see you next week. Until then. <laughs>